Hello, everyone. Welcome to a new episode of the Good Faith Idea Exchange. Now, I'm sure you guys might remember very recently for episodes three and four of this new season, I got to sit down with Professor Stephen Landis from the University of Rhode Island. And we got to talk about um, media and more specifically media's effects on culture and society. It was a two-parter, and it's definitely done very well in terms of um, how much um, buzz it generated and how many listeners it um, has received so far. Um, I wanted to bring Professor Professor Landis back, and um, and this time we're talking more about the reality that media creates. We're talking about um, created media reality and perceived media reality. Um, we're looking at that going back to World War One, back to the early 1900s, and taking it up to the present with um, the terrible events that are happening outside of this country right now. So... Um, yeah, without further ado, let's get started. So first, Professor, um, could you tell me a little bit about the origins of radio? And, you know, when was radio originally developed and how was it initially employed? Yeah, uh, this, this is uh, not detail to detail, but basically it was, it was developed by, uh, you know, people um, playing with crystals, uh, you know, uh, they were the techies of, of their day. And from there, it was originally used uh, not as a mass communication device, the way we uh, think of it now, but really as ship to shore, which was really pretty big for its day. And then later, it, it got into commercial use with the various businesses uh, putting up their, their own uh, radio towers and, and uh you know, broadcasting, groceries on sale or furniture on, you know, talking about themselves. At the same time, the military kind of picked it up because it, it certainly uh, beat, uh, like many other things, the necessities of the military at war, meaning World War One. they used it and picked it up and, and refined it in a lot of ways. As I said, it, it certainly beat uh, carrier pigeons. So then after the military, you know, at that time, the government gave, gave the military the regulation ability. But then after the war, the regulation, so, you know, your radio station wouldn't in interfere with my radio. In other words, with two furniture stores, we don't want to have static back and forth between the, the uh, radio stations. And what happened is they came up with the Federal Radio Commission, which is the uh, precursor of today's FCC. And it had radio had obviously many changes and iterations and convergences uh, over over the years to you know to where we are now, but that's basically uh, the origin of it. If if that makes sense, you know, if gotcha. I was clear about that. Gotcha. Yeah, it does. Um, it does absolutely. Um, and and if I might add, that, you know. It, there wasn't broadcasting as we know it at, at that time, at the beginning, you know, you, you could only go as far as the signal went, you know, you couldn't, uh, brought, you, you know, a signal in, let's say New York wouldn't be heard in Los Angeles. Right. 
Gotcha. Gotcha. And I mean, that kind of goes into my next question. Uh, mm-hmm. When did broadcast news first come onto the scene and what, what did they talk about initially? Yeah. Well, you know, as, as broadcast news as we know it now, uh, number one, you had to have broadcasting first. And what they what they did is they combined two technologies. They combined radio technology with uh, telephone technology. So basically it was, uh, you know, Ma Bell, you know, You'd have a uh, show in New York and it would go out on their signal. And then it would also go on a phone line to Los Angeles or Ames, Iowa, or something like that. So that's when broadcasting, as we know it, uh, came in. So essentially, broadcast news, electronic broadcast news probably started in in real uh time with 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 world war ii that's that's when it became really popularized everything from uh edward r murrow broadcasting from the blitz in london to people wanted to know where their sons and daughters were fighting of course it was censorship but you know after the fact you could learn that the 82nd airborne was in normandy you know uh, because it was interest uh, it was a lot of interest in war news and although it was heavily censored and, and both parties agreed to that censorship, by the way, both the government and, and because of the war effort, the, uh, the media also agreed, saw the need for, for censorship for national security reasons. So that's when it really started and it, it, it blossomed really for there because news, used, news as we know, it used to be the purview of print of the newspaper of the day. Okay. Okay. Does that answer your question, Tyrone? It does. It does. Okay. Um, now, you know, if I don't, just feel free to follow up with anything. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Well, you know, and I, I see, you know, I see how there, you know, was kind of a point where, you know, radio was kind of in, in a way tied to the military, and there was a point where, you know, the initial broadcast news was reported, you know, was kind of tied to World War II. Um, mm-hmm. Now, would you say the advent of television, which, you know, television initially coming out, becoming so popularized after World War II, um, Mm -hmm. would you say the advent of television uh, united the public initially? And and if so, how? Yeah, I I think really it did, because what what it did is it it showed a common experience, you know, uh, to to everybody. Uh, in the sense that it 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 sold the dream, it sold uh, you know the middle class dream to to most people, even even those who, you know weren't able to partake in it. Uh, but you know you had uh, shows like uh, you know uh, Father Knows Best, Leave It to Beaver, that um, all showed that middle class suburban dream mm-hmm. uh, to people, and uh, it was something that post war. Most people want it and we're looking to, you know, the move to the suburbs, owning your own home. And that was all reflected in, in, in TV. And not only that, not that it was reflected in TV, but also it, how should I say this? Not only was it reflected in TV, but it also gave rise uh, to everyone was watching the same thing. There weren't a lot of channels that you could watch, you know, now, my God, you know, I listen to satellite radio. There's, there's umpteen choices. Right. There were, at the beginning, there was NBC and CBS. And, and so if you were watching 
you, you were you didn't have a lot of choice. Everyone was watching and consuming the same thing. Gotcha. So there was a shared common experience. So you would talk at the water cooler the next day about I Love Lucy or, you know, a comedy show or Father Knows Best or the Milton Berle show or things like that. So, you know, you didn't like today we we text each other and say, hey, did you want did you stream this? Did you stream that? It's umpteen choices. You didn't have that. So there was a common experience. Not yeah. only did TV reflect the culture of the time, but it was a common experience in the nation in consuming it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, also, Professor, um, you know, I, I've heard about uh, a little bit about the cone effect. Yeah. Could you could you please tell me a little bit about exactly what that is? Yeah. Uh, uh, a theorist's last name, Whitmore, came up with this this uh, theory. And essentially what it says is he was talking about TV specifically. OK. And so when, when you when you watch a lot of TV that you get their reality. A false sense. In other words, you you see, uh, I was telling my class the other day that, you know, one of the more popular shows was Law and Order. And, you know, in 44 minutes, you you saw uh, someone get murdered, unfortunately, uh, the crime investigated and uh, a person arrested and adjudicated. And 44 minutes, think about that. And I was telling my class, you can't even go to traffic court in 44 minutes. So people right. start, you know, it creates a, a, it's very entertaining, but it's not real. And his concept was that for us to consume media, it has, it can't be just normal. It's got to be, uh, I don't want to use over the top, but push the boundaries. A little. It's about entertainment. It's not about reality. And reality and entertainment are not the same thing. Now, if you watch enough entertainment, you start thinking that maybe the criminal justice system is that way. And it doesn't always apply to TV. You know, if any of us have, have seen a, um, a car chase, you know, usually, you know, I was telling my class, like I was coming out of a building once, I went across the street, I saw a car zoom by and a couple police cars uh, chasing, yeah, chasing it. And then I lost it, you know, a couple blocks down, I lost it. You didn't see it from a helicopter. You didn't see a mom pulling the baby carriage out of the way. You didn't right. see it knocking over a garbage can or going through a clothesline. That's an example of what, what Whitmore was talking about, that although it might happen now and then, we see those things and we start think, thinking chases are that way. When if you've really seen a, a chase, it just goes by you. Right. So what he says is when that created media reality to get your attention, to keep you watching, if you do enough of it, you get a perceived media reality. The, the repetition of that over-the-top, unrealistic message creates a perceived media reality. And I would even argue that, although he he, it, he didn't apply it to, that the same thing happens with, with social media. You know, if you, you, you see unreal, you see influences in unreal situations, you get messages that are over the top. And you can almost see how people go down rabbit holes and, and follow conspiracy theories if you extrapolate his theory out. Right. That actually went right in. Well, that actually kind of covered my next question. But, um, you know, how would you say that 
that how would you say that this all impacts what we view today? Well, I, I think we, we if, if you look at almost any media you consume, there's a degree of, of um, media represents. It's not real, whether it be the, uh, the settings, the, the places. And if you like I said, if you apply it uh, to um, to social media, what are we finding? We're finding the posts that are most often followed and shared are those that are over the top. Okay. Mm -hmm. That are uh, extreme in some way. Okay. Not necessarily politically, visually. Okay. And then we follow that and we follow that and we start seeing the world, uh, Whitmore would argue, artificially through those messages. And I extrapolated in, in, in to political, uh, both extremism and, and uh, conspiracy theories. That's my act, extrapolation, not Whitmore's. Gotcha. Right, right. Well, I think we've all um, at this point witnessed, witnessed uh, some of the horrors that have taken place in Ukraine uh, recently at the hands sure. of Russia. Yeah. Um, you know, how would you say media affects how we view this presently? Well, in some ways, media is, has a, a positive, a, a positive effect. The new media, the uh, social media, is because it's very hard to to shut that down. In some ways, the message has been transmitted to the whole world and and even into Russia itself through various social networks and and. Um, internet uh, uh, channels. But on the other end, I, I, I don't, I'm lucky enough that I have never been in war. Okay. But I think what you end up seeing is you see the stuff that that's um, visually interesting, people crowding onto a, a, a train, people, you know, a bombed out apartment building. And those are horrible things. So the, the, that those things are horrible, but you don't see the totality of, of it. I don't think you really see the, the, the horror, the grit, the, uh, you know, someone is deciding and editing what to put on to keep you watching, not necessarily to tell the whole story. Mm. And I'm not saying that, that these things aren't, uh, that we shouldn't show them, but I don't think we get the true picture of war. I don't even think we, we, get the true picture of the horror of war. Right. Right. Um, actually, that that goes right into my, ne my next question, which was, um, have we, the public, ever really had this level of access to war? And, you well, know. Actually, we, we did once. And, and uh, that was during the Vietnam era. Because don't forget the Vietnam era started in, in the... In the um, in the 60s. And that was a time of new freedoms, press freedoms, personal freedom. Those things were on the uprise. And what happened was, just like there were cultural freedoms, the press had all different types of freedoms. They weren't censored the same way as they were during World War uh, II and, and World War I. So what you did is you saw, I mean, remember as a young man, literally watching uh, scenes from the Battle of Wei in, in Vietnam. You would see uh, dead soldiers being dragged out on ponchos. You would see caskets being unloaded from transport planes at Andrews Air Force Base. Um, and there are some people that 
felt that, uh, in fact, uh, some of these scenes were responsible for feeding the anti-war movement at the time, you know, because here's we didn't see any of that in World War II. We didn't see any of that in Korea. And actually, we haven't seen any of that since because the military have clamped down on it. We don't now see, God forbid, if an American service person gets uh, killed, we don't see the casket coming off. You know, we don't see them being dragged out on a poncho. Okay. Yeah. You see, we can take take a, 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 you know, we can show train stations like we do in the Ukraine and bombed out buildings, or we can show, I remember at that time, Geraldo Rivera riding a tank through a dusty road in, in Iraq. But neither of them give you, those are, those are real, but never, you, you can't get the total picture of the horror of war from that. You get a scene that might be interesting to watch, but it doesn't, it doesn't answer the question of why and 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 uh, the horrors I think that must uh, come with yeah. just that that uh, three letter word war. Yeah, and then too, I think you know, like you, you know, you're not, you can't smell, you know, you right. can't smell the gun smoke. You can't, you know, right. If if you're right. actually it, there. It, Huh? It it's still it's still edited. It, it it's still cleansed in 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 so many ways. It, you, you, I I tell my class, you know, ask them if they've ever been to a real fire, and and they say, you know, some people say yeah, and I said, have you ever seen one on TV? And most everyone does. I said, it's different, isn't it? And they, they admit that they, you know, the smell, the horror, the the violence of it, it doesn't connotate itself, show itself even through film on a TV at your know, six o'clock or, or 11 o'clock news. And I think one could make the same argument about the horrors of war, mm-hmm. because we think we're seeing war. We're seeing someone's, someone's decision to show us a part of the war. It is not the war itself in right. any way, the totalitary, the totality or the horror. Of it. Right. All right. Okay. Well, Professor, um, that's um, that's pretty much all I all I had for you to, um, today. Um, I want to really thank you so much for taking the time to sit down with me. Um, this and evening. and you know, like I do all the time, I would tell you that these are my opinions, and and smarter people than me would disagree. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. You know. All right. And this concludes this episode with Professor Landis. Uh, I just wanted to say that, um, you know, just a reminder that Professor Landis has been teaching uh, for over 50 years. Um, He has a lot of experience in this. He also, um, I have to just say, he did this interview with me while recovering from a concussion. And um, I honestly can't think of anybody else who would be that that dedicated and have that level of toughness to be able to do something like that. So um you know I applaud you, Professor Landis, for um for taking the time to sit down with me. Thank you so much for it. Anyway, hope you all have a great rest of your day and um I'll see you um see you next time.